Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, everyone. It is a nice stormy Tuesday here in Maryland, and tonight is another episode on the cold case road trip. If you're new to Murder Bucket, you might not know that we are currently in a series called the cold case road trip. Let me briefly explain what that means. Over the course of about 30 episodes, we are traveling to all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories, and each week we cover a cold case in two different locations. Tonight, we have made it to stops 37 and 38, and we are traveling to Kentucky and Connecticut. But first, as always, we're going to do our weekend slash week recap. My week has actually gone not so well. My husband and I and our daughter have three cats here at our house. We have a five-year-old black cat named Chekhov, named after a Star Trek character. If I have any Trekkies out there, you know exactly who that is. Then we have an 11-year-old calico named Murphy Brown. And yes, she is named after the old sitcom Murphy Brown and the very short revised sitcom of Murphy Brown. And then we had an almost 12-year-old black cat named Baby Kitty. Now, I did say had because over the course of the last probably six months or so, Baby Kitty had lost a significant amount of weight and went from about 10 pounds down to right under five. And she started to throw up almost every single day and was peeing in inappropriate places. So essentially not in her litter box anymore. We took her to a vet and kind of got some tests run and discovered that she did have liver disease. And really the only options were to pay a significant amount of money to have more tests run to see how advanced it was to see where it is, if it's possibly further in her bloodstream or has gone to other organs. Or again, we could pay another significant amount of money to give her medication, run tests every single month, and keep doing that until there isn't another option. Then the final option was to kind of just let her do her own thing kind of just watch and see what's happening, and if she starts to decline a little bit further, to take her in again. Well, she did start to decline a little bit further here in the last probably two weeks to where we started to have to close all of the doors to the rooms in our house, and we also couldn't let her sleep in the bedroom with us at nighttime because she had peed in the bed while we were asleep, and she was still throwing up every single day and she lost a little bit more weight and then when we took her to a, the vet which is actually a friend of ours she looked inside of one of her ears and noticed that her skin underneath her fur was a little bit yellow so that indicated that her liver disease has gotten a little bit worse 
Unfortunately, we had to make the decision to let her go, which I have to tell you is probably one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do. I don't like having to let go of an animal that I've had for almost 12 years, but I also didn't want to see her suffering anymore. So on Saturday is when we had that appointment. We were there with her. We got to hold her and pet her through the entire process. We made the right decision. I mean, I know we did, but there's always a back and forth of did we do the right thing? So my friend Lauren went with me on Friday, the day before the appointment, to go pick out a nice box and get like a very soft towel to wrap her in so that we could bring her home on Saturday, which we did. Sunday, we found a good spot in the yard to bury her in. And then I got a little like outside statue, very little, like the size of a book uh, to put in front of where we buried her so that we always know that she's there. That was that was my week. It was hard. It was rough. Now I am here with you. You are here with me. Let's go ahead and move on to tonight's episode. Stop 37, Kentucky. 61-year-old Eileen Barrick lived alone in a cabin near Mammoth Cave National Park in Kentucky with her Pomeranian Fifi. She had been a widow since 1982. Her cabin was located in a gated community and there were only two permanent neighbors nearby. Most of the cabins around were seasonal vacation homes. According to several articles that I found, her cabin was located at the end of a gravel road that most people couldn't just simply happen upon. They had to know exactly where it was. On Friday, April 12, 1996, Eileen went out that morning for a chiropractor appointment and then spent time at a tanning salon. Before returning home, she stopped by the home of a handyman that she had hired to do work around her house. Around 2.30, she took Fifi out for a walk around the neighborhood and stopped briefly to have a conversation with a teenager that was staying at his parents' cabin. This was the last known sighting of her. She was planning on spending the weekend with her brother Pete in Frankfurt, but called her sister-in-law earlier that day and told her that she wasn't coming. She gave no explanation. Eileen followed a very strict routine each night. She would light a cigarette, empty the trash in her bathroom, and take her dentures out. One of her neighbors noticed that he hadn't seen her walk Fifi in a couple of days. Her truck was still parked in her driveway, but she didn't answer the door when he knocked on it. He decided to contact the Edmondson County Sheriff's Office on Monday, April 15th to request a welfare check. When police arrived, they knocked on her door and also got no response. They decided to break a window in the kitchen to gain access. Once inside, they went from room to room looking for her, but found nothing. The police who responded to the initial call made a note that there were no signs of forced entry to her home. Inside, they found her keys and Fifi inside of her crate. 
Going back to the mention of her routine at night, police believe that she might have been interrupted by something or someone because she never finished getting ready for bed on Friday. Her cigarette was found on the bathroom counter, an unused trash bag was sitting on the sink, and her bottom dentures were found in a cup soaking, but her top ones were missing. Police then noticed bloodstains on her pajamas. The sheets and blankets that were on her bed had been wadded up into a ball and placed in the center of the mattress. The top sheet was missing. A glass which more than likely set on her nightstand was on the floor. There were traces of blood found in the living room, and the couch was knocked askew. The police questioned the teenager who saw her on Friday, and he told them that he didn't notice anything out of the ordinary regarding her behavior. She was acting friendly and chatted with him before continuing on with her walk. He mentioned to police that she was wearing denim shorts and a blouse and was walking along Laurel Ridge Road. Eileen's family helped police do a search of her home to see if anything else was missing. They determined that a robbery was not the motive in the crime. Her case was first classified as a missing person, but that was later changed when they turned her case over to the Homicide Division of the Kentucky State Police. Detectives didn't believe that she was still alive, even though only a small amount of blood was found inside her home. Police did a search around her home, but stated that the terrain was too difficult to comb through. They decided to bring in helicopters and search dogs to help, but they were unable to find any clues as to Eileen's whereabouts. Her family offered up a $5,000 reward for any information, but as of August 2021, it has gone unclaimed. A man that she knew was interviewed by police, but that turned up little information. In 1997, the Kentucky State Police did several searches of the Green River in Mammoth Cave National Park. The reasoning for this was because a fisherman had reported getting human hair caught in his fishing line on two separate occasions. The hair was sent to a lab, and when it was tested, it was consistent with the hair that was found in Eileen's hairbrush. Investigators used sonar to scan the lake, and they did find some abnormalities. But because of the extreme cold weather and murky water, it made a search nearly impossible. The search was then called off. In the spring of the same year, dogs from the Kentucky Search Dog Association were brought to the area. Each dog picked up the scent of human remains near the shoreline and in the water. Divers searched but came up with nothing. After several unsuccessful attempts, they determined that she was not in the water. Kentucky State Police Detective Jason Lanham, who was the lead case at the time of her disappearance, is quoted in an article on Dateline.com stating, I wouldn't say that it was somebody that she necessarily knew, but there's a good chance that it was. We've had cadaver dog search as late as fall and winter of 2016, but we haven't had enough evidence or leads to make a true suspect or get enough to charge someone. As time goes by, you have fewer and fewer people who know her or remembered what happened. 
One theory that the police have is that she was killed inside her home, wrapped in a missing fitted sheet, and carried outside. They also believe that she knew the person who killed her. In an article on NBCNews.com, Eileen's daughter Kay is quoted saying, It's like having a nightmare that you can never wake up from. She deserved to be buried and not just thrown away. Mama wasn't scared of anything, and that's what really bothers me about this. I hated where she lived. There was just something about it that was scary, but she wasn't scared of it. Trooper Jonathan Biven is quoted in BGDailyNews.com saying, Like any cold case we have, we continue to investigate and follow up with any leads we get. But unfortunately, they run dry. That's a case we'd love to get solved, like several of the other ones that we have. Kentucky State Police Detective Brad Stevenson was a lead investigator in 2014. He received information from another investigator that there was a man with a history of violence toward women that was considered a suspect in her disappearance. Unfortunately, through thorough research, I haven't been able to find any other information regarding this man. Eileen was described as a hard worker by her family. When she wasn't in the tobacco field, she could be found cooking for the workers. She enjoyed fishing near her home and growing roses. She was the mother of four daughters. She made all of her children's clothes. And as of 2018, she would have been the grandmother to four girls and three boys. At the time of her disappearance, she was last seen wearing a blouse and denim shorts. If you have any information regarding Eileen's disappearance, you are encouraged to contact the Kentucky State Police Department. We will be back with Stop 38 in Kentucky after a quick word from tonight's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. This summer has been big. And now that everything is finally getting back to normal, people are heading out for long overdue vacations. And that means people will be playing Best Fiends like crazy. Best Fiends is the five-star rated puzzle game that's the perfect travel companion, and you can download it for free from the Apple Store or Google Play. Collect more of your favorite cute characters while you're waiting in line at an amusement park or soak up just a little more sun as you try to defeat just one more challenging level. This game has over 5,000 levels, so the fun never stops. Every time you play, there's always something new to experience. Make the most of your summer downtime and spend some time with your favorite fiends. Download Best Fiends on the Apple app or Google Play for free. Remember, that's friends without the R. Best fiends. And we're back. Stop 38, Connecticut. On July 26, 1973, 7-year-old Janice Pocket hopped on her bike on Anthony Road in Tolland, Connecticut to search for a butterfly that she had tucked under a rock while on a family walk just days earlier. She was planning on bringing the butterfly back home in an envelope. 
This trip was the first time that she was allowed to go out by herself. Her mother requested that she only go to the spot where the butterfly was and to come right back. When Janice didn't return home after 30 minutes, her mother went out looking for her. She found her green Murray bike near a wooded area on Rhodes Road, less than a mile from their home. The envelope, the butterfly, and Janice were not there. An extensive search was conducted almost immediately after her disappearance. An article I found on rcccmcc.com states that this was possibly one of the largest searches in Connecticut history. Well over 800 people volunteered, but no evidence was ever found. In an article on journalinquiry.com, Ginny Lee DeCoco, a detective with Connecticut State Police, is quoted stating, I do think that there are people out there that know what happened or did hear something. There is nothing active that we are currently pursuing, but we are still accepting any sort of information, especially from the public. In early 2000, bone fragments of a child were discovered in the garage of Nathaniel Bar Jonah. Police learned that Nathaniel lived only 20 miles away from Tallinn when Janice disappeared. He would have been between the ages of 14 and 16 at the time. He was considered a suspect by the police. It wasn't until a DNA test was done in 2001 on the bones that it was discovered that they did not belong to Janice. A pedophile named Charles Pierce confessed to killing Janice. He claimed to have buried her in Lawrence, Massachusetts, near an unidentified boy. Neither of those graves have been discovered. Investigators have not been able to locate any evidence backing up his claims. At the time of her disappearance, Janice was last seen wearing navy blue shorts with an American flag imprinted design, blue and white striped pullover shirt, white socks, and blue sneakers. The following year, on October 31, 1974, 13-year-old Lisa White was arrested for underage drinking in Vernon, Connecticut. When she was picked up by her parents and brought home, they grounded her. The next day, on November 1st, after her mother went to work around 4.30, she snuck out of the house to meet a friend on Prospect Street in Rockville. When that visit was over around 7.30, she began to walk home. She never arrived and was never seen again. When her mother came home that evening, she found a note from Lisa that stated that she was in love with an older boy and she was sorry for what she always did to hurt her. A search was conducted, but her remains were never found. No evidence was located either. April Folletti, Lisa's sister, is quoted in an article on WFSB.com stating, just trying to get her name out there and maybe spark something into someone's memory. You never stop looking. You never stop looking for answers. At the time of her disappearance, 
Lisa was last seen wearing green pants and a blue denim jacket. Many investigators believe that Janice's case and Lisa's case are linked. Within a 10-year span, five girls disappeared in the same general area of Connecticut. They all ranged from 7 years old to 20 years old. Two of the girls were found several years after they disappeared. I was unable to find any proof that these cases are connected. Lieutenant William Meyer of the Vernon Police Department has worked on Lisa's case for over 19 years. He also worked with a special cold case task force that has attempted to link Janice's, Lisa's, and another young girl's cases together. They reached out through media in 2020 in hopes of getting renewed attention on these cases. They are hoping that just one person has information and that they might be able to crack these cases open. If you have any information regarding Janice or Lisa's disappearance, you are encouraged to contact the Connecticut State Police Department. I realize that our second stop tonight was a little shorter than usual, and I want to first apologize. Connecticut is a very small state, and these two cases were actually the most researched cases that I could find. I do hope you still enjoy tonight's episode. With that being said, we have roughly about nine more episodes in the Cold Case Road Trip series. I hope you will listen to the very end because once we're finished, there's going to be a huge giveaway of several different Cold Case books. Now, before you go, Please check out this promo from my friends at the 30 and Nerdy Podcast. What's up, nerds? Tyler Mack here from the 30 and Nerdy Podcast, the flagship show of Bad Cast Company Productions. I am interrupting your regularly scheduled podcast to tell you about the show. At 30 and Nerdy Podcast, we talk all things nerd culture and do it while entertaining, enlightening, and educating the masses of the nerd world order. So when you're done with this phenomenal show you're already listening to, zoom on over to 30 and Nerdy Podcast, hit that subscribe button, give it a listen, a rating, and review, and don't forget to check out 30andnerdypodcast.com. Cheers to you, nerds. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurdBucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at BucketMurd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day!